wrong. And so after 16 months, I came to the conclusion there is no science to support evolution. It is a fairy tale for adults. And I became a biblical scientific creationist, which means that I believe today 100% from the Bible and 100% from science that creation is true occurred approximately 6,000 years ago. It was much easier in the year 2000 to say 6,000 years ago, you know. Apparently, some of you need to do the math there. Uh, just, but, you know, I've noticed the older I get, the older the universe gets. Y'all really do need caffeine. I'm telling you right now. But, but I came to the conclusion, and I became a biblical scientific creationist, one believing 100% from the Bible and 100% from science that creation is true, and exactly as the Bible records. Now, the Bible doesn't need science to support it. Hello? It's simply truth. But good science does support what the Bible says. Now, I'm going to ask all of you a question because, remember, this is going to be kind of like a big Sunday school and so forth. Um, and please do remember, pastor is listening, okay? Okay? Um, how many of you would agree that all Christians are called to share their faith in Christ with others? I think I heard three voices and you were one of them. <laughs> Come on, I said pastors listening. How many of you will agree that all Christians are called to share their faith in Christ with others? Yes. Amen? But tell me something. You see, I want you to see how you can use creation to reach others. Uh, and let me just ask, if you're supposed to share your faith in Christ with others, how many of you have tried to do that? And then they have said, well, and, and, and again, it might not be worded exactly the same way, but how many of you have, have this response? Well, if you could just prove to me that God existed, then I'd be willing to believe. Hello? Any of you ever heard that conversation? If you could just prove to me that God existed, then I'd be willing to believe? This morning, I want to show you how you can prove that God exists, that he's actively working throughout human history, that he can arrange things to occur at any time he chooses to do so. And so with that in mind, the, uh, by the way, those of you that are here for the 9 o'clock service, remember that it's 6 o'clock tonight. We're going to be showing you about the flood of Noah. We're going to show you the actual physical evidence. We're going to show you the Bible is absolutely correct about a worldwide flood occurring approximately 4,500 years ago. You will see the evidence for yourself. You won't have to believe me. And tomorrow night we're going to be talking about simple, easy-to-understand science for a young earth, young universe. Tuesday night. Now, Tuesday night is kind of interesting. I'm going to talk about there's no truth to human evolution. Some of you are going to say, I'd rather go out and use my coupon at the restaurant. But I assure you, you do want to be here on Tuesday night. Believe it or not, I can make dry bones fun. <laughs> Hello? I'm serious. I absolutely guarantee you, if you will come on Tuesday night, and especially for the last 10 minutes, you're going to go out of here, shake my hand, and thank me for getting you out here on a Tuesday night. I, I'm serious. I really am. And, of course, on Wednesday night, we've saved our single biggest presentation. It's about dinosaurs. It's our single biggest presentation. I mentioned coffee, right? <laughs> Caffeine. Now, let me show you a tool, though, that you can use in witnessing to prove that God is alive, actively working throughout human history, and you are going to get a head start on tonight's presentation. Yeah, see, because you came at 9 o'clock, you're going to have an advantage on those that didn't come at 9 o'clock. 
So what I'm going to ask you to do to prove that God exists and give you a tool to show you how to prove it, I'm going to ask you to open up to the convenience store verse of the Bible. The convenience store verse of the Bible. See, that's Genesis 7-11. Oh, I heard that moaning and groaning. <laughs> hey, listen, no, no teacher's taught until a student has learned. Are you ever going to forget the convenience store verse of the Bible? See, it works, doesn't it? Now, if you open up your Bibles to Genesis 7-11, now, we're going to talk more about some things there tonight, but just for this morning only, please notice you'll have in your Bible a verse that says something like, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, the flood began. Now, we're going to go talk about some of the other things that are there tonight, but what I want you to notice is, Many people read dates in the Bible that are recorded, and they just gloss right over it. They fail to understand the significance. Now, if God put it there, there must be a reason, right? Notice that in many cases in the Bible, the dates are like, you know, in the uh, second year of the reign of king, who cares, such and such a thing happened, right? Kind of nebulous. But notice that God tells us it was the 17th day of the second month that the flood began, correct? Now, that tells me that's important. So, first of all, if it says it's the 17th day of the second month, what time of the year is that? Come on, remember, I, I said we we're going to be responsive here this morning, and even if you feel reluctant. So, what time of the year would that be, the 17th day of the second month? Well, people are starting to, to say some things. I can't hear all of you, but uh, I heard at least one person say February, and, and I could understand why you would say that. It's not right, but I can understand why you'd say it. Um, anybody else? Oh, now I'm getting April. Okay, anybody else? Uh, no? Well, see, what I'm really trying to get you to think about is this. That's not our calendar. Nowhere in the Bible do you have the Julian or the Gregorian calendar that we use today. And in the book of Genesis, the only calendar you have is called the Jewish civil calendar. And the Jewish civil calendar begins with a feast or festival of the Old Testament called Rosh Hashanah. Now in Hebrew, Rosh means chief or head of. Rosh Hashanah means chief or head of the year. It's what you and I call New Year's Day. But it occurs in mid to late September, the way you and I count time. So we know that God created the earth and the universe in mid to late September, as you and I would count time, correct? <coughs> Folks, saying yes would be helpful. Uh, well, of course, the earth is uh, three days older than the rest of the universe, right? You might remember the sun, the moon, and stars are not created until day four, right? So the earth is three days older than the rest of the universe. I'm getting some of you to start the thinking here. Okay, now, so let's think, when did the flood begin? Well, if the year begins in mid to late September, we're going to add one month, that's mid to late October, and we're going to go 17 days into the second month, correct? And that tells us the flood began in roughly the first week of November, the way you and I count time. Now, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. You notice it says there that the ark of Noah came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month, correct? Now, um, 
Do any of you here know why there are 360 degrees in a circle? They just taught you in school there's 360 degrees in a circle, and you said, I know the answer to the quiz question? Hello? No. But why? You have to go back to creation. You see, when God started his calendar, well, he started with 12 months. That's why we still have 12 months today. And every month of the Hebrew calendar has exactly 30 days. There's never 28, like February, 29, 31. There's always 30. And please tell me, 12 times 30 is 360, correct? And the reason that there's 360 degrees in a circle is because, well, the Earth rotated 360 rotations in one orbit in one year. Now, of course, at tonight, as we'll take a look at, things occurred at the time of the flood that changed that. But initially, the Earth was rotating 360 days in a year, and uh, that's why we have 360 degrees in a circle. Now, if you'll take a look at the last verse of chapter 7, you'll notice it says, the waters of the flood prevailed, rose, continued to rise for exactly 150 days. Is that correct? Now, that would be exactly five months, correct? Five times 30 is 150, right? Now, in the Bible, the number five is associated with the concept of grace. And so let's think about what happened. God sent a worldwide flood in judgment. Is that correct? The waters rose for exactly five months. And then in God's grace, he stopped the waters rising. Then if you'll take a look in Genesis chapter 8, it says that the flood waters went down, receded for another 150 days. So that means that the earth was covered with water, not entirely, but over a period of a total of 300 days, correct? which is 10 months, 10 times 30, correct? Now, the number 10 in the Bible is associated with, well, perfect spiritual completion. And so we see this, for instance, in why are there 10 commandments? It's the perfect number of commandments to accomplish God's law. Why were there 10 plagues in Egypt? It's the perfect number of plagues to accomplish God's purposes in Egypt. And the earth was covered with water, though the waters rose and fell, but the waters covered the earth for a total of 10 months because it was the perfect amount of time for the earth to be covered with water. Everybody with me so far? Two people. How about the rest of you? Just, you know, I'm going to have to do something for Pastor Charles here. Um, listen, folks, when, when you say amen, when a, when a preacher's preaching or a teacher's teaching, it's kind of like saying sick him to a dog. You know, come on, it gives us encouragement, okay? So, so far we're good, right? Now think with me for a moment. If the flood begins in the first week of November and you go five months, that means that uh, the ark came to rest in approximately late March or early April, as you and I would count time, correct? So it would come to rest in the spring of the year. Now with that in mind, the ark came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month, Genesis 8-4. And the seventh month is the month of Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. It's kind of like the car, but with one S, okay? Now, with that in mind, would you please turn to the book of the Exodus, chapter 12. The book of the Exodus, chapter 12. Now, remember that the Exodus occurs approximately 2,500 years after creation. 
So the flood is exactly 1,656 years after creation. The Bible is very specific about that. And Moses is living roughly 900, 1,000 years after the flood. And so the time of Moses is basically about 2,500 years after creation. And so for the first 2,500 years in the Bible, we have only one calendar, the Jewish civil calendar. But now we're going to go to the time of Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but I find Moses a very interesting kind of guy. Oh, come on, folks. He's the friend of God, right? You know? um, but think about the life of Moses and the Exodus for just a moment. Now, we're not going to go through all the details, but remember that God arranged things so that Moses would actually, well, he'd be raised for 40 years in the house of Pharaoh. Is that correct? Now, why did God want Moses to be raised in the house of Pharaoh for 40 years? Now, folks, I have the greatest respects, especially for a football team located here. Apparently, you're not aware. You are. Oh, but I have the greatest respect, I assure you. Um, but, but think about this. I have a prophetic word for you, and I'm not a prophet. I'm a teacher. Why? did God arrange for Moses to be raised for 40 years in the house of Pharaoh? Because God wanted Moses to have the finest education money could buy. Think about that. Moses was a highly intelligent and highly educated man. He had the finest education money could buy. And then what happens? Well, God arranges it so that Moses will go out into the desert for 40 years and learn how to raise sheep and goats, correct? This was in order to prepare him to be a pastor. <coughs> Apparently some of you need to think about that. And then at the age of 80, he sends him back into Egypt with the message, it's time to let my people go, correct? Now, I'm not trying to forget the supernatural here at all, but, but, but think with me for just a moment. What was the deal? And just think of it as an economic arrangement for a moment. We're not going to take away from the rest of it, but just for a moment, think of it as an economic thing. What was the deal? Moses tells Pharaoh, God has said we're to go out in the desert for three days and worship him. Is that correct? Now, please tell me, if they had been allowed to do that, what would they have then been duty-bound to do? Return to come back, correct? I mean, the whole story of the Exodus is we're going to go out in the desert for three days, worship God, and then we're going to come back. Is that correct? But Pharaoh will not allow this. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, it says that God turned his heart. And Pharaoh refuses. And so God will send the ten plagues. Now, the ten plagues are very interesting. They're not random at all. They're very specific and in a very specific order. God is a perfect general. You know, folks, that was a time for good amen. Uh, I'll give you a second chance. I said, God is a perfect general. Amen. And when you read these, and I have them in my book on the feast, as a good general, he starts at the periphery and in concentric rings gets tighter and tighter. And he destroys their economy, their military, and finally at the end, he destroys their religion. Hello? So they're not at all random. But after the ten plagues, now think about this. Um, well, if you read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, You'll notice it says there that 
God tells Aaron and to Moses, I want you to make this month the first month of a brand new calendar. It's a calendar for the purpose of religious events. And when God says, I want you to make this month the first month of a brand new calendar, he's talking about the month of Nisan. And so what does God do? 2,500 years after creation, he takes the seventh month of the civil calendar, the month of Nisan. He makes it the first month of a brand new calendar of 12 months for religious purposes. And so many Christians fail to understand some great biblical truths, not because they're mysteries, not because they're hidden, but because they fail to understand that there are two calendars and not one. The civil calendar begins in September and goes for 12 months. But in the spring of the year, the seventh month becomes the first month of the religious calendar, which is also 12 months. And so there's two calendars exactly six months apart. Everybody with me so far? Now, in Exodus chapter 12, notice what it says next. As you start to read verses 3, 4, 5, 6, notice it says this. After creating the second calendar, God says on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, you're to select a lamb, one for each household. Four days later, you're to slay the lamb at exactly 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, if you have a translation that says between the evenings, remember that words change meaning over time. And what that actually means is between the afternoons. The Jewish day is divided into four pieces of three hours each. So you have an early and late morning, an early and late afternoon, and you're to slay the lamb at exactly 3 p.m. between the two afternoons. Everybody with me so far? Now, I mentioned the ten plagues. Obviously, the other ten plagues are occurring in the winter and in the early spring because obviously the 10th plague is going to be coming right now, correct? And it's late March, early April. But what was the 10th plague? Well, a couple of people said death of the firstborn. Anybody else? No? Well, let me explain. You have to read it in Hebrew. Because what it says in Hebrew is the death of the firstborn male, that opens the womb. Did you hear that? It's the death of the firstborn male, that opens the womb of all the people and all the livestock. Now I'm going to make a little statement to you right now, folks. Unless you have a basic understanding of agriculture, you cannot understand 90% of the Bible. The Bible is written in agrarian language to an agrarian people. And almost all the metaphors are agricultural. And so first of all, think with me for a moment. The death of the firstborn male, that opens the womb. So if a daughter is born first, then the next that's a son doesn't apply, correct? It has to be the male that opens the womb of all the people and all the cattle. I'd like you to think about this for just a second. First of all, in Old Testament times, men often had more than one wife. Is that correct? Come on, folks, get biblical here, right? I mean, especially pharaohs. <laughs> Hello? Well, okay, maybe you're not aware of this. Um, Ramesses II was not the pharaoh of Moses, but Ramesses II was perhaps the single greatest pharaoh of all of Egyptian history. He reigned for over 60 years. That's a pretty long reign, and he had 
52 sons. Do you think he really only had one wife? Excuse me? Now, he had a total of 106 children. You think you got problems? We've actually found the tomb where all 52 of his sons were buried. But he was not the Pharaoh of Moses. But, but in those days, men often had more than one wife, correct? So think with me. That night, Pharaoh lost more than one son. Hello? And what about the livestock? Would you agree with me? If you know anything about agriculture, you have only one bull for many ladies. Is that correct? Uh, hello, folks? Oh. You see, the carnage in Egypt was vastly greater than you have ever contemplated. Hello? But, but looking at Exodus 12, you select the lamb on the 10th day of the month of Nisan. You inspect the lamb for four days. Then four days later, on the 14th, you slay that lamb at exactly 3 p.m., correct? Now, I also want to admonish you about something that we're going to be talking about later this week, too. So I would please like a big hearty amen after my next statement. So kind of get a couple of deep breaths. Never, ever get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Learning Channel, Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, or Hollywood. It's pretty weak, folks. Come on, a little stronger the next time, okay? But why do I say that? Well, first of all, it amazes me that people will see Hollywood-made movies that have Jews in them and then think they've learned something about Judaism. Hello? Come on, how many of you have seen Ben-Hur, okay, right? How, or or how, how about, uh, well... Charlton Heston playing Moses, right? I mean, you know, right? Uh, I mean, you've seen these movies. Now, uh, that's Hollywood. That is simply Hollywood. But I would like you to think about this with me for a moment. You see, I wanted to warn you about that because there is a movie made by Hollywood that I can actually recommend. It's based on a Broadway musical, but it's called Fiddler on the Roof. And it's a histo-documentary kind of thing. It's a real events, but a fictional story about real events. But it was real events. And there's a, a song in there called uh, Sunrise, Sunset. Now, for that reason, many people believe that the Jewish day begins at sunset. But that is not true. It doesn't begin at sunset. You see, you have to go back to Genesis. Remember, God said the day starts in darkness and ends in light. Is that correct? Had you ever thought about this? The rotation of the earth teaches a biblical truth? Because when we're all born, we're born into darkness, aren't we? But if we come to know him, we end up in light. Is that right? And even the rotation of the earth teaches a biblical truth. And you see, God says the day starts in darkness. Now, it is not absolutely dark until 90 minutes after sunset. And so the Jewish day does not begin at sunset. The Jewish day begins 90 minutes after sunset because it must be absolutely dark. And so think about this. The date on the Jewish calendar does not change at midnight the way you and I do it. It actually changes in the early evening, not at midnight. So I'm going to ask all of you to kind of help me to, to count off as we're going along here. But you select the lamb on the 10th. You slay the lamb at exactly 3 p.m. on the 14th. And then what happened next? Well, you apply the blood to the doorposts and to the lintel, correct? 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think they were in a hurry. How about you? Oh, come on, folks. That thing just coming by in about three hours. I think they were in a hurry. How about you? By the way, I do have to give some free medical advice to a few of the people here. Um, if you listen to me while you have your arms crossed, you will go to sleep. You see, it cuts off the oxygen to your brain. and <laughs> So uh, that's just free medical advice. Now, think with me for just a minute. I think they were in a hurry. Now, they're dealing with blood, not paint. It's going to coagulate quickly. They're using an ancient form of paintbrush called a hyssop plant, and I don't think they're trying to stay in between the lines, do you? Hel hello? No? So I think they kind of went like this. Splat, splat, splat. Seem reasonable? But please tell me, when they go splat on the lentil, isn't there going to be a moment in time when some of that blood is going to drip on the threshold? And you are going to want blood on the threshold, correct? Right? Okay, look, folks, do you want the death angel sliding in under the door? Come on, this is a bad idea. But what I want you to see is in Egypt, the blood was here, 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 and here. Hello? Yes, in Egypt, the blood was here, 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 and here. And sealed behind that door with the blood on all four sides, that night they're going to eat the lamb. Now, that is the first sign of communion in the Bible. And, uh, well, help me count off, if you would. Now, you slay the lamb at exactly 3 p.m. on the 14th, but that evening, well, 90 minutes after sunset, the date changes. So if you slay the lamb on the 14th, that evening it becomes the, come on, folks, you just add one, it becomes the 15th, right? And that's the day you eat the lamb. Now, that evening, behind the door, they will eat the lamb, a sign of communion with God, and the death angel is going to go throughout the land and kill all the males that are firstborn that open the womb of all the people and all the cattle, correct? About midnight on the 15th, Pharaoh surrenders. He says, I give up, enough's enough, you can go. And they start walking southeast in the middle of the night. They were told to have their shoes on, ready to go. And they start walking southeast in the middle of the night. About 6 a.m. on the 15th of Nisan, at sunrise, men are sent over to a town in your Bible called Succoth. But it's actually, in Hebrew, the word tukot. But in English, it's actually the word tabernacle. And they're to pick up the body of Joseph that has been waiting at tabernacle all those years. And they pick up the body of Joseph, and they rejoin the main group. Now, that tells me, you know, there are things that God says to people that are not recorded in the Bible. Hello? Because that tells me that, that, well, God's been speaking to Moses on the side and saying, you better pick up the body of Joseph on your way out because you ain't coming back. Hello? Why would you pick up the body of Joseph if you were going to come back? So they continue to walk that day, which is the 15th. Now, then at the end of the day, they're going to stop, they make camp, the date changes, and it becomes the, come on, folks, it was 15th, now it becomes 16th, right? And they rest the night of the 16th, but then they get up and they walk the rest of that day, which is the 16th. Now, that evening, they stop, they make camp, the date changes, and it becomes the 17th. It is the night of the 17th day of Nisan that God performs the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. Hello? It's on the 17th that they have their backs to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh chases after them. Now, think with me for just a second. Um, this is the time 
big, loud, hearty amen this time. I gave you a rehearsal the first time. Big amen after my next statement. Never, ever get your education from government-run television, National Geographic, Learning Channel, Discovery Channel, Animal Plant, or Hollywood. That's better. Again, how many of you have seen The Parting of the Red Sea in a Hollywood-made movie? I, I mentioned Charlton Heston, and for the younger ones here, Prince of Egypt. Hello? Did you ever notice in those Hollywood-made movies, they show you this little slit in the Red Sea, right? What a joke. What a joke. I've been looking around the room while I've been speaking and so forth, and I would say, from what I can see, every single person in this room could do the arithmetic. Think with me. To get one and one-half to four million people through that hole in approximately four hours... The hole in the Red Sea had to be at least five miles wide. Come on, folks. When God parted the Red Sea, he kind of like parted the Red Sea. Hello? And that hole had to be at least five miles wide. And in Corinthians, we are told that as the nation of Israel went down with the water standing above them on either side, they were being baptized in the waters of the Red Sea. That as they rose up onto the Sinai Peninsula, they were baptized in the Red Sea and resurrected onto the Sinai Peninsula to go on to the Promised Land. What happened to those Egyptians who tried to chase after them? They perished, is that correct? So the waters of the Red Sea were waters of baptism to the believer, but waters of judgment to the unbeliever, is that correct? I'd like you to think back with me to the floods. Let's go back to Genesis for a moment. Now, we think about the Ark of Noah. We're going to talk about the flood of Noah tonight. But the Ark of Noah. Now, there are, depending upon your translation, hmm, yes, Lord? Um, it's always interesting when, you know, ambulances, fire trucks, and others kind of come in on you. Um, but, but, think about the word Ark. Depending upon your translation, you'll think of two or three Arks in the Old Testament. There's the Ark of Noah, of course. But there's also the Ark of the Bulrushes, the baby Moses floating down the Nile. And there's the Ark of the Covenant. But in Hebrew, there's actually two different words. One word, translated for the Ark of Noah and the Ark of Bulrushes, the baby Moses floating down the Nile, means an object made for floating. But the Ark of the Covenant means a piece of furniture, which is what it was, a wood box covered in gold. But... This word that can be translated in an object made for floating, which is one of the legitimate translations, can also be translated as the word coffin. C-O-F-F-I-N. Now, why is it called a coffin? Well, it was a rectangular solid. It was a barge. It was not a ship. And it looked just like a coffin on the outside. Now, had you ever noticed in your own life that God will often use opposite logic to the way you and I do things? Okay, I'll repeat the question. Had you ever noticed in your own life how God will often use opposite logic to the way you and I do things? Oh, think about the opposite logic that God used at the time of the flood. When you think of a coffin, don't you normally think of death inside and life outside? Come on, folks, that's the way you do it around here, right? But think about the opposite logic that God used at the time of the flood. He took the seeds of life, placed them inside the coffin, and he condemned the world outside to death. Is that right? And as the coffin is floating in the water. Now, I have a DVD. I've got a 
chapter in my book on creation about this, the ark would have actually sunk into the water halfway. And, of course, there's the 40 days and the 40 nights of rain at the beginning of the flood, correct? So would you agree with me, the ark was like really wet on the outside, right? So can we not make an argument that the eight people inside the coffin were being baptized in the waters of Noah's flood? And when the coffin came to rest on the 17th day of Nisan, did you notice that's exactly the same date on the Jewish calendar? That they walked to the Red Sea, is that correct? And the ark came to rest on the 17th day of Nisan. And they were resurrected into a new world out of the coffin. Hello? The symbology could not be clearer. Now, I've just shown you that the ark came to rest on the 17th day of Nisan, and they crossed through the Red Sea on the 17th day of Nisan, approximately a 1,000 years apart. Correct? Apparently, some of you need some more examples. Um, if you would, please turn to the book of Joshua. Now, I'm going to give you some verses. Joshua 3.15, Joshua 4.19, and Joshua chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12. And I'll repeat. Joshua 3.15, Joshua 4.19, and Joshua chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, remember what happens. Moses will bring the people up to the Jordan River, but because of a sin in his life, he was not allowed to go into the Promised Land. Is that correct? He will die just before they go into the Promised Land. Now, I don't know about you, but I really like Moses. Did you ever notice he wrote the entire book of Deuteronomy in one day? Hello? Yeah, if you read Deuteronomy, he wrote the entire book of Deuteronomy in one day. But he will die before they go into the promised land, and Joshua will lead the people into the promised land instead, correct? Now, if you'll take a look at Joshua 4.19, you'll notice it was on the 10th day of Nisan that they're going to go into the promised land. Now, that is exactly 40 years to the day that they selected the lamb in Egypt, correct? And, of course, how did they go in? Well, remember that Joshua commanded the priests to pick up the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the river. Is that correct? However, if you'll take a look at Joshua 3.15, remember, this is the spring of the year. This is late March, early April time frame. And it says there clearly, that the river was flooded at that time of the year. And we know it was flooded, whether the Bible says it or not. This is the time of the year when the snow melt is coming down from Mount Hermon, going down the Jordan River. And the tenth day of Nisan is the time when the Jordan is at its deepest, its widest, its fastest. But we would know that even if the Bible didn't tell us, but the Bible does tell us. Now think with me for just a moment. When the priests looked at that river, they were not looking at a brook, a rill, a creek, a crick. Hello? They were looking at a flooded, raging torrent. And in the natural, they looked at that river and said, if we walk into that, because Joshua said, walk into the river. But they had looked at it and said, if we walk into that, we're gone. Hello? But think with me for a moment. At the word of God, given through the man of God, to the people of God, they took a step of faith. Is that correct? And they walked into the river. And once they had taken that step of faith, God parted the Jordan River in the same miniature way he did with the Red Sea. Is that correct? 
Now, think with me for a minute. Before they could go into the promised land, what had to happen? Well, if they were baptized in the waters of the flood, if they were baptized in the waters of the Red Sea, before they could go into the promised land, they had to be baptized. And they were baptized by walking through the Jordan River in one day. Now, if you read Joshua chapter 5, verses 10, 11, and 12, it says this, after going through the water, after having been baptized to go into the promised land, it says that they will celebrate the Passover. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it has been 40 years, but this is only the third Passover. You see, the first Passover was in Egypt. The second Passover was one year later at Mount Sinai, but for 38 years they did not celebrate the Passover. They didn't have the right elements. They didn't have the lamb. They didn't have the matzah. They were eating manna and birds, correct? They didn't have the right elements to celebrate. And besides that, God was with them. Hello? But in the 40th year, they go into the promised land. Now, the Passover must be slain on the 14th day of the month. But they go through the river on the 10th, which means that they inspected the lamb for four days as they had done in Egypt, correct? But think with me for a moment. They camp for three days of purification, and on the 14th day of the month, they will slay the lamb. Notice in Joshua it says, on the day after they ate the lamb, that was the last day that God provided manna. God took two days to wean them from manna. On the 15th and the 16th, he's going to wean them from the manna, but they slay the lamb on the 15th. The day after that makes it the, okay, if you slay the lamb on the 14th, the big part, next day makes it the 15th, that's the day you eat the lamb. And the day after that makes it the 16th, and that's the last day that God provides manna. So the day after that makes it the 17th. And on the 17th, they ate only of the first fruits of the promised land. Now, if you'll go to Leviticus chapter 23, the seven major feasts are listed in order. The only chapter in the Bible where you'll find all seven together, but it lists the date of their celebration. Now, you have to read other places to find out how to do it, but the dates are there. And the Bible says the third feast is the Feast of First Fruits. It occurs on the 17th day of Nisan. And think with me. The term first fruits in the Old Testament is always interchangeable with resurrection. Always. Think with me. Jesus often talked about himself being the first fruits offering. He says, when you lift me up, not if, correct? And the first fruits offering is a, a wave offering lifted up before the Father and waved before the Father in thanksgiving. And Jesus was lifted up. As a matter of fact, he says, as Moses lifted up the Nehushtan, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, that was the stake with the snake on it. And uh, Jesus says that's the same way it's going to happen with me, that he's going to be lifted up on a stake. Uh, he also says, if a seed doesn't fall on the ground, it won't bring forth a great harvest, correct? Talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. So, you get the idea, the 17th day is dealing with resurrection, and uh, I've just shown you, the ark came to rest, they walked through the Red Sea, and uh, they ate of the first fruits on exactly the 17th day of Nisan, again, spread out over a little more than a thousand years, correct? 
And anybody here see the hand of God at work? Hello? Apparently that is just not sufficient for you. Okay, one more example. Would you please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12? That's what makes this so easy to deal with. Exodus chapter 12, John chapter 12. But if you read John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, your Bible should say something like this. Uh, On the eighth day of Nisan, a Friday, Jesus will walk into the area of Jerusalem, but instead of going into Jerusalem, uh, he will turn to the left, and he will walk down the Mount of Olives, which is a ridge, and uh, he will go to Bethany, and he will, uh, well, he'll go to the house of Lazarus, and there they will serve him an evening meal. Is that what your Bible says? No? That's not what your Bible says? Well, maybe it does, but just not the way you're used to it. Think with me for just a moment. It does say it was the eighth day of Nisan. It does say it was a Friday, uh, even though you don't see it there. But think with me for just a moment. Does it not say that six days before the Passover? Well, if the Passover is the 14th, what's six days before that? It's the 8th. You see, John says it's the 8th. He just does it in a way you're not used to. But six days before the Passover, on a Friday afternoon, Jesus will have completed a two-day walk from Jericho up the Red Ascent. And he arrives in the area of Jerusalem, but instead of going into Jerusalem to the right, instead he will turn to the left. He will walk down the Mount of Olives, and he will go to the house of Lazarus. And it says that there they serve him an evening meal. Now that means that uh, this is after the sun has set. This is after the date on the calendar has changed. So if he walks in on Friday afternoon, it's the 8th. That evening it becomes the 9th. But it's Friday night, and every Friday night, doesn't matter what the date is, every Friday night is Shabbat. And on Shabbat, he cannot walk more than a Sabbath day's journey. Now for you, that's about three-eighths of a mile. That means that on Friday night and Saturday, he must stay on the top of the Mount of Olives. He cannot go into Jerusalem on the 9th. So Friday night and Saturday, the ninth day of Nisan, he stays there. But the next day is Sunday, and he walks into Jerusalem, and it's the 10th day of Nisan, correct? And he will fulfill a couple of prophecies. He will ride in on a colt that's never been ridden before, correct? And the people greet him, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quote Psalm 108. It's a messianic psalm. And... uh, But what is this word? You pronounce it in English, Hosanna. But what does it mean in English? Very good student. Means save now. But when you point at an individual person, it becomes a declarative, a demonstrative statement. It means this. You save us now. Save now. You save us now. And in fulfillment of the prophet Daniel, they cut him off. Think with me for just a moment. Daniel is the greatest single prophet of the Old Testament, in my opinion. There are great prophecies by great prophets. There's a prophet that says a virgin will give birth. Now, you've got to admit, that's a pretty heavy-duty uh, prophecy, agreed? But did he say when? No, he just said it was going to happen, correct? But do you realize Daniel accurately prophesied the year, the month, 
in the day of the month that Jesus would be chosen as a lamb. Oh, yeah. He prophesied exactly the year, the month, and the day that Jesus would be chosen as a lamb. Remember, I talked about agricultural terminology. When it says that, that Daniel says he will be cut off, that's the same terminology we use today. You see, to cut off means to remove one individual from a larger group. It's what you do when you cut one steer out of a herd, one lamb out of a flock. Don't cowboys still today use cutting horses? Well, it's the same word. And so what happens? Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Sunday, the 10th day of Nisan. That's the day you select the lamb. It's the exact day in Egypt. It's the day they walk through the Jordan River. And the people select him. They cut him off. And they say, you save us now. Four days later, what did that same crowd say? Crucify him, crucify him. May his blood be upon us and our children, correct? And it is. Hello? You see, they inspected him for four days. And on the 14th, they said, he's perfect. Slay that one. Remember what's going on here, folks. Do you, do you remember a, a couple named Ruth and Boaz? Well, they were raising sheep in Bethlehem, correct? Now, think with me. Where did they raise the sheep for tabernacle and temple worship? Yeah, come on, folks. See, the, the correct answer is in the previous answer. Yeah, Bethlehem. That's where you raise the little lambs for temple and tabernacle worship in the Old Testament. And, of course, Ruth and Boaz would have a grandson named Jesse. And Jesse would have a bunch of shepherd sons, the youngest and ruddiest of which we all know his name. It was King David. Is that correct? And he was a shepherd boy raising sheep for tabernacle worship in his time. And 1,000 years later, one of his descendants would be the last lamb we would ever need. And, uh, well, Jesus is selected as a lamb on the 10th. The people inspect him for four days. And after four days of inspection, they say, he's perfect. You have to understand that, again, what happened in the Old Testament time? Well, on the 10th of Nisan, priests would walk from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem. You know, we have such a strange idea of size here in the United States. We, we do. I mean, I drove up here from Orlando, thought nothing of it. Um, I grew up in California. We used to drive 500 miles just to visit the neighbors. Hello? But in Israel, everything is so compact. Uh, you see, Bethlehem is only five miles from the Temple Mount. And so, uh, well, in the morning they would walk down and uh, they would select two lambs, one for each of the priests, and they'd have lunch and then they would walk the two lambs back to Jerusalem because they wanted to be sure they had one perfect lamb. And so they took two. And if they were both perfect, they selected one of those, and the other one could never be used again. Um, but in this case, Jesus was selected as the lamb on the 10th. On the 14th, they said, he's perfect, slay that one. And they nailed him across at 9 a.m. in the morning. It turned dark in the middle of the day at noon. Three hours later, at 3 p.m., he will die on the cross the same time the little lamb died on the Temple Mount nearby. He's on the cross for six hours. But he dies at 3 p.m. Now, that left three hours for his body to be taken down, placed into a tomb that already existed, and his body is interred in the ground. Now, remember I talked about these symbols of baptism and resurrection. 
Now, in baptism, we inter you in the water, and then we raise you up because we want you to breathe, right? That, that is the way you do it around here, right? Okay. Um, but Jesus then is interred in the ground, and it's on the 14th. Now, think with me. He's in the tomb before the day ends. So that night it becomes the 15th, and they will eat the lamb in celebration. But his body is in the tomb the night of the 15th and the day of the 15th. Then we have the night of the 16th and the day of the 16th. And then Saturday night the moon rises, the date changes, and it becomes the 17th. And on 6 a.m. on the 17th day of Nisan, a Sunday morning, the women were privileged to discover the resurrection. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry, but uh, that would normally make a Baptist say amen. <clears throat> How about you guys? Well, let me remind you. I've just shown you the ark came to rest. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate of the first fruits of the promised land, and Christ rose from the dead on exactly the same day of the calendar over 2,500 years of human history. Think with me. Is it possible for human beings to coordinate even over 100 years of time? No, it's not possible. What about 2,500 years of time? It's simply not possible. It shows you that God is alive. He's actively working throughout human history. He can arrange events to occur at any time he chooses to do so. Now, I'll make mention for those of you that just can't keep up with the note-taking and so forth. We have a DVD of this morning's message at a longer length. There's more material. And a book on the Feast of the Old Testament, what I've just shown you is a page and a half out of 116 pages. Hello? But God does exactly the same thing with all of the feasts. He has a theme for each of the various feast days. The theme for the 14th day of Nisan is the, the theme of slaying the lamb. The 17th, the theme of baptism and resurrection and so forth. We see all of this throughout Scripture. And if you're not convinced, let me talk with you about a minor feast. Because in my book, I talk about all seven major feasts, the minor feasts, some non-biblical feasts that are mentioned in the Bible, but they're not God-ordained. And I have three appendices. But just to show you how God is in control, that you really can trust the Bible and its accuracy, let me mention the, the feast called the Ninth of Av, Tishaviav in Hebrew. It occurs around the 1st of August. It is the worst date in Jewish history. Try this one out. It's the day the ten spies came back from the promised land with a bad report and condemned the nation to 38 and a half years in the desert. It's the same date that in 586 B.C. the first temple was destroyed. It's the exact same date on the Jewish calendar that the second temple was destroyed in the year 70. One year later, on the exact same date, the temple was completely cleared off the Temple Mount in fulfillment of prophecies of Old Testament prophets and of Jesus. It is the date in 135 the Jews lost the battle at Baitar to Hadrian's troops, and the nation of Israel ceased to exist. It began the diaspora. It is exactly the same date on the calendar in the year 1290 that King Edward I kicked the Jews out of England. Any of you remember King Edward I? No? How many of you remember a movie called Braveheart? Yeah, that was King Edward I, Edward Longshanks as he was called. But he 
was the one who expelled the Jews in 1290 from England. And it is the day in 1492, chosen by the kings of Spain to kick the Jews out of Spain, it's the day that Columbus sailed for the New World, taking the gospel to the New World. He was a Christian missionary of his own kind, but he was taking the gospel to what he thought, India. But all those things occurred on exactly the same day of the Jewish calendar. Now tell me, anybody here see the hand of God at work? Yeah, you really can trust that God is alive, actively working throughout human history, that he can arrange things to occur any date he chooses to do so. Amen? Now, pastor's going to talk with you for a couple of minutes, I'm sure, and uh, I'll be out at the book table if I can answer any questions for folks. And if you're coming back at 11, be sure to get some caffeine. <laughs>